God's Word Community Church welcomes you to six weeks of Easter, the journey to the cross and beyond, recorded in detail by the Apostle John in his Gospel. Jesus, the Messiah, brings you something found in no other religion in the world, real evidence of life after death, facts of the real God's work in space and time to give you real hope and a future. Join us through the death and the resurrection written by someone who is there. Rejoice for he is alive. I want to invite you to um, turn in your scriptures to the Gospel of John chapter 15 in uh, preparation for our work in the Word right now. The reason why our congregation exists and kind of the center of our focus is to promote and dive into the Word of God, which we understand is that which creates the power for transformation in our lives. It's the Word of God that does the heavy lifting. Um, It's no coincidence that when we read about the creation of the universe, it comes from God speaking. It comes from His Word. His Word is different from our Word. His Word has infinite power. Mine just stirs up the airwaves for a little while and then it's gone. His word goes out with perfect intent so that what he intended his word to do is what his word actually does. My word very, very often creates very different things than what I intended when I spoke it. And as human beings, we've all had that experience. We need the word of God in our lives. It is that which changes us, which The creator of the universe recreates us more into the image that he originally intended. And so we submit ourselves to the word, to receiving it. And it's that thing which we want to invite Christians all over the world to return to, to drink deeply of, and to invite God into their lives by turning to his word and letting him speak into their lives. Here, as we're just a few weeks before Easter in this year, we are trying to follow Jesus through the word of his apostles to see what happened. How did he end up on the tree? And, of course, what he's going to tell us about why he was willing for that to happen. The night that Jesus was betrayed, when he could have just focused on himself, Instead, he taught his disciples every last minute that he had with them. As we approach Easter 2015 at God's Word Community Church, we discover that the Gospel of John records no less than five whole chapters of teaching from Jesus on that night, from the time that he went to the upper room till the time that he got to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray before the soldiers captured him. Five whole chapters He teaches his disciples in one night. After Jesus washed the disciples' feet, Judas Iscariot went out into the night. John is very vivid when he says, and Judas went out and it was night. Because beginning at that moment, the the daylight of Jesus' presence with his disciples really is drawing to a close And the whole world of evil that Satan can marshal in all of the human beings that are around him are all aimed at killing the Son of God and putting him up on that tree. Jesus knew fully what was going on. None of this was catching him by surprise. And as Judas is out setting things up, with the enemies of Jesus, they're drawing the soldiers together, they're setting the plans in motion to hold phony trials under the darkness of night. While all of that's going on, Jesus is intently teaching his disciples. He will share with them foundational principles of Christianity, some of which we looked at last week, such as he is coming back for us to take us to be with him so that we can be with him where he is. 
He is teaching us that when we see him, we see the Father. He is teaching us that the Holy Spirit will take from what we learn in God's word and remind us of it so that we can use it in our daily lives. And then he teaches us what it takes to experience our victory in him. And I have to tell you, as I thought about how I would entitle this message, I'm not really happy with this title. It's not a very pretty title. All I've called it is two parts of being with Jesus. And what I mean by that is that to be with him really requires two things. And you're going to see the first part of it in chapter 15. You're going to see the second part of it in chapter 17. In chapter 15, Jesus offers to us one of my favorite parables of his. And I think it's actually one of his own favorite parables. Because he goes back to the image of a vineyard in his teaching over and over again. He uses the vineyard parable over and over. What is the vineyard parable? The vineyard parable is this idea that God is the gardener. God plants the vineyard. God sets up the vineyard. He does everything for the vineyard that the vineyard needs. He clears out the stones. He puts up a wall to protect it from wild animals. He fertilizes it. He waters it. And in the end, why? Why does God plant the vineyard? Why does any gardener plant a vineyard? Because he's looking for fruit. Now, the original idea for this parable came from the royal prophet, a prophet that some people have called the Shakespeare of the Old Testament because of the beauty of his language, Isaiah. Isaiah in chapter 5 tells the parable of the vineyard for the very first time. And I think Jesus must really love Isaiah's parable because he takes Isaiah's parable and reuses it and reuses it and reuses it. In Matthew chapter 20, you can read that Jesus will use the vineyard parable to help us understand why some workers enter the kingdom in their youth and get fired up early on and spend their whole lives working in God's vineyard. Some people get selected in midlife, and they end up working half of their life in the vineyard. Some people get caught in their last days when they're already old, and kind of in the, how Jesus describes it, in the end of the day of their life. They come and work in God's vineyard. Then in Matthew chapter 21, God uses the vineyard parable to describe two kinds of religious folks. And he describes those religious folks as being like two sons. One son, the father comes to and says, come work. And the son says, okay, I will. And then he doesn't. He bails. So he does one thing with his mouth. He does something different with his life. The other son, the father comes up to and says, come work in the vineyard. And the son says, Nah, Dad, I don't feel like it. And at first he says no, but then the call of his father kind of weighs on his heart, and he gets up and goes works in the vineyard, even though originally he said no. It's an interesting picture of how we respond or don't respond to God, how we say yes and don't follow through, or sometimes how we originally push away, but then the call of the father pulls us and we, we're compelled to go. And then in the latter part of Matthew 21, and this, this is also picked up by the Gospel of Mark in chapter 12 or in Luke chapter 20, we get this very, very dark telling of the parable of the vineyard where the servants that the master put in the vineyard actually start turning on other servants of the king. And as the master sends his servants to go collect the earnings from the vineyard, the people who work in the vineyard have now decided that the vineyard should really belong to them. It's not the master's vineyard at all. It's their vineyard. And so when the servants, the other servants of the king, come to get the wages, those servants get beat up. Some eventually get killed. At the end, the father sends his only son to collect from the vineyard what is his, and they murder the son. 
And Jesus asks the listeners, which includes the Pharisees, which include the Sadducees. Why is that important to us? Because those are the professionally religious people. Professionally religious people who have forgotten who the vineyard belongs to. They say, maybe if we kill the air, maybe if we kill the sun, the vineyard will indeed belong to us, and we can take the vineyard to be our own. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees, it says, were very, very clear that Jesus had told the parable, had spun it against them. I love this parable, though. The way he tells it in John 15, the very night that he was betrayed, because to me, the way Jesus applies this parable for you and for me makes some complicated ideas very, very simple. And I have to tell you, as a pastor, I've had people come and talk to me when they had made their lives such a mess, so complicated that when they look at the knots they've made at their life and they don't know how to begin untying them, what should I untie first? How can I put this in any kind of order that makes sense? I've had occasions where people came to me with messes that they had made that were so complicated, I had no more idea where to start with their mess than they did. But I was able to direct them here. Because no matter how messed up you've made your life by not paying attention to God in the past, no matter how complex a wad you've created, the answer always starts with one thing. Get closer to Jesus. Get closer to Jesus. Get closer to Jesus. I am the true vine. Now, why is Jesus going to put the word true in there? Because there's alternative vines. There are other vines that you can hook yourself up to, that you decide you want to be in a life flow relationship with. There are other vines out there that are glad to direct your life, to pour into your life so that they can produce the kind of fruit out of you that they want. Jesus says, out of all the vines, that you could hook up to, I am the true vine. And my father, God is always the vine dresser in these parables. He is always the gardener. He is the all, always the one who has had the vision for what kind of fruit can actually come out of this vineyard. He's the one that knows what it can be. And in verse 2, we learn about two kinds of branches and what happens to them. Every branch in me. Hear that expression? This is one of the reasons I'm not a real big once saved, always saved kind of guy. He's talking about branches that are in him. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, when there's no fruit, he takes that branch away. We're going to find out where that branch goes in a little bit. And every branch that does bear fruit, what does he do? He prunes it, thank you very much. God, I'm bearing fruit for you. Good boy, sit still. I'm going to cut something here. You know what, God? I really am satisfied with my character right now. I think you've taken me far enough. God's never satisfied with me as much as I am. God is always saying, you know what? You could be producing a lot more fruit if you didn't have this dead piece hanging off here. You keep feeding that dead thing. Let me cut that off. You know, I'd like to keep it, Father. Actually, I'm kind of attached to it. Yeah, that's exactly the problem. Snip. You know, Lord, you're annoying me. God has a different vision of me than I have. He has a different vision of you than you have. He can get way more fruit out of you than you think he can. He has got, he can draw you a lot closer to him than you are. He can sanctify you much further than you are currently devoted. What is your job? Stay in the vine. Stay connected to the vine. We always want to run away from him. 
We get irritated with him, tired of him. He's not sending back the answers on time that we want. We pull away. We get distracted. He prunes and it will bear much more fruit. Now look at verse 3. You know, I would love someday to hear the commentary on my life that Mark overemphasized the Bible, that he put too much weight on the Bible. I can't get away from it, though. Look at what he says here in verse 3, for example. You are already clean because of the what? What do you see there? The word which I spoke to you. The word which I spoke to you made you clean. Well, what if I don't hear it? What if I don't read it? What am I missing then? Clean? Is that what I'm missing? You know the old the, the old cliche, cleanliness is next to godliness, that doesn't actually occur in the Bible. I always tell people that when you read the Bible, there are two things that are going to catch you by surprise. Number one is the things you thought that were in there that aren't. <laughs> and number two, the things that are in there that you had no idea were there. Jesus says here that receiving the word of God cleans you. There's a cleansing experience that happens just in receiving it. Reminds me of a statement that I heard from from an old Christian woman who talks about when she reads the word, sometimes she's not aware that she's learned something new. But she always senses that she's cleaner afterward because she's been in the presence of that word and heard it and received it. I feel like that's what Jesus is talking about here. Now, verse 4, he says, abide in me. Now, abide is old language. You know, it's funny because I'm reading out of kind of a modern translation here. This is the English Standard Version. We don't use the word abide very much anymore. You don't sing old hymns. You probably won't see this word in English anymore. But it means to remain. It means to come in the front door and stay there. Hang with me for a long time. Abide in me and I in you. Now check this out. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself. Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. It makes me wonder what's going on in churches when church leaders are not spending personal time with Christ anymore. One of the weird occupational hazards of church leadership is that sometimes church leaders will start thinking of their time in service for the church as a substitute for their own personal time with God. They really need somebody to remind them that even if all their programming is slick and goes off perfect, if people in the congregation aren't strengthened in their personal relationship with Jesus, then it's all for nothing. All you have done is created a schedule and filled it up. But if half of our programming succeeds and half of it goes half as well as we'd like, if the people actually get closer to Jesus, we've done what we were supposed to do. It is the abiding in Jesus that's important. We can't bear fruit without it. And so when I'm aware that people have diminished their personal relationship with Jesus, when I see churches that are not helping their people spend time with Jesus, then I wonder what all the hubbub is. What is it all really creating? Is it much ado about nothing? As Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 13, like a clanging gong or a noisy cymbal, is that what we've got if we're not actually growing closer to Jesus, growing deeper in our commitment to him, hearing his commandments, responding to him as Lord? Where is it all going? Abide in me. 
I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. I have to warn you about verse 5. I think most of the time I've heard people handle verse 5, they handle it like a threat. God is saying, if you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. Like God is saying, I can tell if you're abiding in me or not by whether you're bearing fruit. So you better bear fruit to prove that you're abiding in me. That's all backwards. <laughs> Have you ever heard some bully say that ain't a threat, that's a promise? On the good side, that's how I hear verse 5. I don't hear verse 5 as a threat. I hear it as a promise. If you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. Sometimes I need that encouragement. Sometimes I look at myself, I'm so aware of my weakness, I'm so aware of my sin, that sometimes I lose this idea that God can even do anything with me. Jesus is saying here, if you stay in me, the fruit will happen. You don't have to fret the fruit. I, one of the things that occurred to me a while ago, and it, it, it kind of makes me giggle when I think about it, but if you go to a fruit orchard in the spring, you don't ever hear those trees grunting, do you? Apple trees don't go, hey, trying to pop out apples. They don't have to do that. Bananas don't grunt while they're popping out bananas. Oranges don't grunt. Orange trees don't grunt while they're popping out oranges. If their roots are in the soil, the branches are connected. The twigs that hold those buds are, are served by the branches. The fruit will occur. And that's what Jesus is telling us. You will produce the fruit that you need to produce if you hang tight with me. This makes this radically simple. I don't have to worry about fruit production. What I have to worry about is staying close to Jesus. That's what I have to worry about. That's what I have to fight against my fleshly nature for, is to stay close to him. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. You ever felt yourself wither? You felt your spirit wither because you're not tapping the branch who's connected to you. You feel your spirit shrivel. One of the, one of the ways that I describe this to, to folks as I try to encourage them in their Bible reading, their personal time with Jesus, is that our spirits really are like leaky buckets. We can, we can have the spirit fill us, but he's infinite. We're finite. That, that filling leaks out of us if we don't keep going back and being freshly filled. One of the reasons you want to keep reading the Bible is because you don't want to be given people stale water, stagnant water, water that you got fed by five years ago and you haven't done anything with it since. You need to be given people fresh water. Your children need fresh water from you. Your spouse needs fresh water from you. Your coworkers, your friends need fresh water from you as it's flowing through you. It means you have to stay connected. If you abide in me and my, oh, what does this say? And my words, there it is, that God's word thing again. If you abide in me and my words abide in you. I don't, you know, when I see a conditional sentence like this, I wonder if it's possible to overemphasize the word. I wonder. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask what, it, oh, wait a minute. He just told us that our prayers, the effectiveness of our prayers depends on being hooked into the word of God. I've even had church leaders tell me that they're not really reading, but they pray and everything's okay because they pray. And I want to jump up and down and say, dude, everybody prays. 
These extremist Muslims that are beheading Christians in Iraq, they pray. Everybody prays. Buddhists pray. Hindus pray. Everybody prays. What makes it legit or not legit? What we need to understand about fallen humanity is that, as I've said before, an uneducated conscience is not worth much. We need the Word of God in us even to know what to pray for, how to pray. I I can't think about this without thinking about the old song, Oh Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes-Benz? That's what an uneducated conscience does. My friends all drive Porsches. I must make amends. That's what an uneducated human conscience does. We pray narcissistically. We pray through our eyes instead of through God's eyes. It takes the word of God to see things through God's eyes. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much proof fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Don't just talk, disciple. Let's see the fruit. And that's going to come from remaining in Jesus Christ. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Wow, that sounds like we get a choice about that. I'm not always sure I want a choice about that. Sometimes I'd like to think I I could be as rotten as I want to be, And, you know, God's just going to pat me on the head and say, what a nice boy. Look at verse 10. Doesn't this start with the word if? Is there an if here? If you keep my commandments. Wow, is this really in the United States in 2015 that we would talk about, you know, I love God. You keep his commandments. Ah, what commandments? It's all about I love God. You know what? (sighs) I cannot say verse 10, and I can't say verse 14 when Jesus says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. One of the reasons we get confused about God is we keep trying to remake him in our image. If I say to you, you are my friend if you do what I command you, what are you going to say to me? Keep it clean. (laughs) If I say something like that, I'm a narcissist. I'm diagnosable. Something's broken. I need to get it fixed. Right? But when God says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, guess what? He's God. That's why he says things like this. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Sounds like a conditional statement. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. There aren't too many times you see a recipe for joy. Whether we know it or not, we just read it. We just read Jesus' recipe for joy. Abide in me. Let yourself bear fruit because you're getting closer and closer and closer to me. Obey my commandments that your joy may be full. Joy truly is independent of external circumstances, but it is highly dependent on our connection with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is where joy comes from. Our submission to him, our obedience to him, our connection to him. And then he speaks this commandment. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Now, he's spoken this commandment the same night. This kind of touches me because he had told them this commandment after he washed their feet. In John 13, just two chapters before this one. Now he repeats this commandment as they are on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. They are in between the upper room and the garden now. They are on the way. 
and he is teaching them this, and he brings this commandment up again. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all that I've heard from my father, I've made known to you. This is one of the differences between Christianity and an awful lot of religions in the world. Christianity has another nothing occult in it. By occult, I mean hidden, secret, or tucked away where only the specially initiated get it. Now, cult and occult are not the same thing. If somebody makes a weird flavor of a normal religion, that is a cult. So, Hare Krishna is like a cult of Hindu. And most of us would regard Jehovah's Witness and Mormonism as cults of Christianity. They've taken something mainstream and made strange changes in it. Occult is something altogether different. Occult means there's something hidden or secret that we're not going to let you know on the first day. On the first day, you have to join my little group and you're going to be um, an initiate for six weeks. And all I'm going to teach you to do is how to light these candles. And you have to sit here in this particular position and wait after six weeks, then I'll make you a novice and you can be a novice and you learn how to repeat these words. These words are the words that we're saying. Now they're in a different language you've never heard before, but you can mimic these words and you'll be saying the right words. And after you do that for six months, then I'll make you an apprentice. And after apprentice, I'll let you come into the chambers where I put my collar on and my special outfit, and you'll find out that I have this secret underwear that I have because of my religion. I don't let you see it, but you'll know I've got it. And then after you've been an apprentice for a whole year, you've been in my little group now for a year and a half, then you're going to enter the order of the ferret. And as a member of the order of the ferret, you're going to learn these rituals and these routines. You're going to learn how to perform this way. And then maybe if you work really hard as a ferret, you'll get to be a member of the order of the owl. And we'll make you an owl and I'll show you more information. That's what occult means. Occult means so much of what we've got is hidden. That's not what Christianity is. Christianity, you get the whole deal on day one. You get the whole book. Everything that's available to you in Christianity is available to you on day one. And the only difference, it depends on how quickly you learn it, how quickly you want to put it into motion. God is light. In him, there is no darkness at all. One of the basic characteristics of light is that it is self-revealing, self-renouncing. There's nothing secret here. And that's a wonderful, wonderful thing. I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. And by the way, you didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask. Notice once again, we have a connection to prayer here that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may do it. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Now, I'm not going to finish the rest of chapter 15 because I am focusing today on what Jesus taught us that night about being next to him. And the rest of chapter 15, he will go on and try to explain to us how, why it so happens that the world will hate us when all we're trying to do is something good. And that's one of the weirdest things about being an active Christian. I don't know if there's any other kind, but being an active Christian. I've told people over and over again that when you start ministering in the name of Jesus Christ, whether you ever get paid for it, whether you ever have a title or not, when you start ministering for Jesus Christ, there are going to be two things that you need, and they sound like contradictions, but you're going to need them both. One is you're going to need a thick skin, rhinoceros-type hide. 
you're going to have to have thick skin. Because all you have to do is try to do something good, and somebody's going to accuse you of doing it because you think you're better than everybody else. They're going to immediately tell you what you're thinking and what you're feeling and why you're doing what you're doing. Or they've been armchair quarterbacking everybody else for 15 years. They've never lifted a finger to minister, and you start trying to do something, and they're going to instantly tell you how to do it. And they've never done it before. I always love it when people with no kids give deep advice to people that have kids. Say, you know what? <laughs> it's different when they're yours. <sighs> I'm not saying you have to go through everything to be of any use to anybody else. That's not what I'm saying. But I am telling you that when you start to minister, you need to have a thick skin. Because people are going to hurt your feelings about it. And at the same time that you're going to have to have a thick hide to be able to minister, you're going to have to be able to stay sensitive. You're going to have to care about other people. When they hurt, it's got to matter. If somebody's offended, it's got to matter. Even if the offense is their fault and you can't fix it. You have to be able to stay sensitive. You have to be able to care. Jesus was constantly being moved by impulses of compassion. And so do we. If we want to be like him, we have to be able to be moved by compassion too. But you can't be sensitive in the way that when you get offended, it'll take you out of the game. Scripture says, do not become weary in well-doing, or you will reap a harvest if you don't give up. So I'm going to skip us over to chapter 17 because I want to show you something beautiful. And this is the second part of what it takes to be with Jesus. Because what, what you've heard about in the vineyard parable in chapter 15 is you've heard a lot about what Jesus is asking for from you. Chapter 17 is about what he does for us. And it's something that we couldn't create and that we couldn't succeed without. In chapter 17, this chapter is very, very often called the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And only John records this. John 17 is the only place you can get it. In this first section, we read, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. I've pointed out to you that ever since before Palm Sunday, Jesus has been using this language about the son of man being glorified and God being glorified when Jesus obeys God and submits to God all the way to the place where he sacrificed on the cross. I don't usually think of being glorified as being tortured and killed. You know, if my, if my, if I had an employer and that employer wanted to glorify me being tortured and killed, wouldn't be the things on my list. But as Jesus draws close to the cross, that's how he's using this expression more and more and more. I'm going to glorify you, God, by doing what you've said, even though this is going to be awful. Since you have given him, that is son, the son, authority over all flesh, who is Jesus for? All human beings, all flesh. Since Jesus has authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. You do see the unique position that Jesus claims for himself, right? I've had various people, especially from cults, try to tell me that Jesus never claimed to be the son of God. I've had Muslims tell me that Jesus never claimed to be the son of God. They, you need to keep reading your Bible. Start over again. When you get to Mark chapter 15, and we're in Mark's versions of the trials, the high priest said, tell us plainly, are you the son of the blessed one? And Jesus says, ego me, I am. High priest says, what else do we need? Here we have Jesus claiming authority over all flesh to distribute eternal life. That's a big deal. I don't have that. <laughs> verse 3, underline verse 3. 
memorize that it is here. You may want to memorize the verse. You're going to see a definition of eternal life in 17.3 that you may have never known of before. This is eternal life. What is eternal life? This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is eternal life, to know God, to know Jesus Christ. This is eternal life. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. How does Jesus talk about glorifying God? I did what he told me to do. How do we glorify God? By doing what he tells us to do. I, I worry about modern churches that are driven by great ideas and want to come up with big ideas, good ideas. This is the kind of church we're going to do. I always want to ask, what did Jesus tell the church to do? Is Jesus the fountain of good ideas, or is Jesus Lord? Because from my point of view, there isn't a lot real complicated here. Jesus is the Lord. He calls you, you love me if you do what I command. What does he command? As you go, make disciples of all nations baptizing, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And lo, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. And so God gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers for the purpose of equipping God's people for the works of ministry so that all the body of Christ may be built up. Then we will no longer be infants blown here and there by every deceitful wind of teaching and scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all ways Grow up into him who is the head, even Christ. That's what he told us to do. I don't need to hire a group of consultants to find out what the mission of my church should be. I'm following somebody. He told me what the mission of this thing is. I don't know. Maybe I need to hire consultants to teach me how to read. (laughs) And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Now, he's going to pray for his disciples, those that are living at that time. Look at what he says about these guys. Jesus just blows me away sometimes. Because you know what? He's told us some spooky things in chapter 15, didn't he? I chose you to bear fruit. If you don't bear fruit, if you don't remain in me, you're going to wither. And the branches that wither are clipped off and thrown in the fire and burned. Ouch. That's scary. If you don't bear fruit, you're not proving that you're my disciples. Every branch that doesn't bear fruit is clipped off, thrown in the fire, and burned. Ouch. Again. So chapter 15, I'm really looking at my side of how I stay close to Jesus. Chapter 17 blows me away because I find out how generous Jesus is with how he thinks of us and how he thinks of them. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. And that's when I want to sit in the back and raise my hand. But, Lord, hold on just a second, Lord. Can we stop copying for a second? This, and they have kept your word. Okay, I'm, I'm, can you help me with this? Because these are the guys that when you're getting ready to come to Jerusalem to die, they're going to argue with each other about which of them is the most important. That They're not looking to the rest. You've told them over and over again, you're going to be raised again. And old Thomas says, well, let's go that we can go die with him. Thank you, Eeyore. These guys fight with each other. They judge one another. They've been arguing this night. I ain't going to wash your feet. Jesus like, I'm washing feet tonight. How can you say, Lord, they have kept your word? These guys are a train wreck. Like me. It is amazing to me that in a way... Jesus gives them credit for the fact that they have made the decision 
that they're going to follow him, that they're going to treat his word as authoritative, even though they're sloppy at it sometimes. That is amazing to me. When the crowd turns away in John chapter 6, and Jesus says, are you guys going to turn and go away too? Peter says, where else would we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. When you go from chapter 6 to chapter 17, you see how important Peter's statement is. They have kept your word. Now, last week I explained to you that the word keep in the New Testament is a word that I really want you to treat as something special. The word keep doesn't just mean to obey, and it certainly doesn't mean to put on a prominent place on your coffee table and to gather dust. Keep is the Greek verb tereo, and the easiest way to understand how rich it is, and you've heard me give this illustration before, is to compare it to, in English, we have the word castle keep, which refers to the largest, most thick and high tower in the center of a castle. It takes effort to build a castle keep. It's, it's hard work, requires a lot of labor and laborers. And it's where you hoard your water, your women, and your wealth. You put the most vulnerable, precious stuff in the kingdom in the keep. And when Jesus says, keep my word, what we need to think when we hear this word is obey, hold, treasure. They have kept your word. For I have given them the words that you gave me. They received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours. Yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. And I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world. That's why he's praying for us because he knows we're still in this world. And I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me. See, he's praying that we will endure in our faith, that they may be one even as we are one. He's praying for our unity. Isn't that nice of him? Uh, to pray that we'll be able to stay united? We're terrible at unity. We're human beings. The worst thing in the world is for you to be almost like me and just a little bit different. If you're just a little bit different, I have to throw you out, right? Because I'm a human being. While I was with them, verse 12, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture may be fulfilled. So yes, Judas is going to be lost. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have the joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them what? Your word. <laughs> and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of this world. Again, it blows me away. The mother of James and John comes to Jesus and say, would you guarantee me that when you come in your glory, each of my sons can sit on your side? How can you say these disciples are not of this world, even as Jesus is not? They sound pretty worldly to me. And yet they made a decision to follow him and that he had the right to tell them what to do, what to do. And he makes his pronouncement. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of this world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. You want to know how to get sanctified? Keep reading your Bibles. Stay in it. Take it in. Let it change you. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world, and for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. And I know we've been going on for a while now, but you can't miss what's happened in verse 20. Because this is where Jesus prays for you. Even in Maryland. Even in the 21st century. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And here we are reading the words of one of the men that he first prayed this about. We are reading the words of the Apostle John, whom Jesus said this prayer over. That's us. This is us. That they may be one 
just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe you have sent me. What Jesus tells us here is if we can manage to figure out how to get along with each other, not even get along with the planet, if we can just get along with each other, it will be a testimony to the world that we belong to him. This is part of our evangelism. Our unity is part of our evangelism. What causes people to head for the hills from a church as to see them so torn up with each other that they can't get on the same page? That drives people away, doesn't it? They call themselves Christians. Well, it doesn't look like it's working for them, right? The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as you, you, we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. Jesus wants us to see. Jesus wants, to see, wants us to see what he's like in his ascended glory by the Father. Look at my room. <laughs> Look at my chair. Look at the beauty of heaven, which I have recreated for you. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he prayed that about you that you might know the love that God the Father has for you and that that love may be in you and that you can experience unity with the Father, unity with the Son, and unity with your brothers and sisters. He prayed for you. What does it take to be with Jesus? It takes our commitment to abide in Him, to obey His commands, to bear the fruit that He seeks from us. But He is generous in the way He measures us. Our decision makes us His. It makes us different from the world. We sin like others sin, but we know we are sinners and we hold on to him because with him alone is life. We seek his word and commandments because we seek his glory, love, and joy. We come to know him and it changes us forever. Let's pray. God, may your word bear fruit in us. May it transform us. May we hear what you have said. May we be faithful to you as friends and servants. And Lord, we just thank you. Thank you so much. In Jesus' name, amen.